a gross story. That's what we see here this morning in Luke chapter 7. This story is a gross story. Language is a funny thing, a beautiful thing, but a funny thing, and it has multiple layers of being beautiful and funny at the same time. Uh, one of those is just simply in translation, and there are a couple examples here of language going a, quietly, a little askew in translation. So this here says, do not disturb, tiny grass is dreaming. I don't think that's exactly what the sign was intended to say. This one's even better, beware of safety. I'm not sure that quite got translated right. Here's one of my favorites, hand grenade. Well, it's not just translation where language becomes amusing and can become a little bit of a struggle. It can also come, for those of you, if you're like me, you are totally dependent upon spell check. Unfortunately, when you're paving a road or painting a road, spell check doesn't work. That could totally be me. The youth can testify to that. It's not just misspellings, though. The reality is, is that sometimes it's the order of words. Wash and vacuum senior citizens, 1595. I didn't know that was a thing, but apparently so. Yep. This is my favorite. Caution, slow kids on road with no shoulders. They were trying to get a lot in on that sign. It's also a dead end. I, I, yeah, a lot could be, could be said there. Language is a funny thing, and, and there are complications to it on multiple levels as we, as we wrestle with, with language. And this morning, I am using language. When I call this a gross story, I'm doing that because one of the challenges when you're learning a new language is to learn vocabulary. But you're not just learning a bunch of new words. You're learning that each word, or many times, words have multiple definitions. And so you learn an initial definition, and then you try and use it, only to realize you're using it wrong, and and those things. And this morning I'm playing off of that with calling this a gross story because I think we see three gross things in this story. The first is we see a gross heart. Next, we see a gross love. And third, we see a gross compassion. A gross heart, a gross love, and a gross compassion. The first is a gross heart. We see that in this Pharisee. Now here, when I mean gross, I, I've got the, the definition up there. The idea is something that is really bad. It's, it's objectionable. It, it, it's, it's obviously bad. And we see that as we greet this Pharisee. Now up to this point in the Gospel of Luke, uh, Jesus' relationship with the Pharisees has been, well, you could describe it as rocky at best. In chapter 5, the Pharisees object to Jesus forgiving the sins of the paralytic. In chapter 6, the Pharisees object to Jesus' disciples plucking grain and eating it on the Sabbath. Later on in chapter 6, the Pharisees object to the fact that Jesus chooses to heal a man whose hand is withered because he does it on the Sabbath. And in fact, in chapter 6, verse 11, things really begin to crank up. The, the, the tension intensifies because we read this about the Pharisees, but they were filled with mindless rage and began debating with one another what they would do to Jesus. Now, when it says what they would do to Jesus, I don't think they were discussing, like, do we throw him a party? Do we, uh, I don't know, do we invite him over? Should we just send him a text, a card? 
No, they want to eliminate him, to get rid of him. Earlier on in chapter 7, the chapter that we are in, we find that some of John's disciples, John the Baptist's disciples, have come to Jesus uh, with a question from John to say to Jesus, are you the one or should we look for another? After Jesus has talked with them and, and sent them away, he turns to the crowd and he begins asking them some questions about what they went out into the wilderness to see. And in the midst of all of that, we find, we're told by Luke in verse, uh, in verse 30 of chapter 7, we are told that the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose for them because they had not been baptized by John. These Pharisees were the leaders of a generation that had judged John the Baptist because he didn't eat and drink as demon-possessed and had judged Jesus to be a glutton and a drunkard because he did eat and drink, finally laying this statement on him that he is a friend to sinners. So there was for sure a troubled relationship. So if you're like me and we, we read this in the first verse, verse 36, it says one of the Pharisees asked him to a meal. We go, wait, why? Why in the world would Simon, this Pharisee, invite Jesus over for a meal? Well, ultimately, the text doesn't tell us. And I can tell you when you read this story, it's easy for me to just turn Simon into just kind of this, um, this evil villain, right? From like a cartoon evil villain that's just sheer evil and that's it. And it's just kind of a flat character. But I don't think that's the case. While I don't think that Simon's intentions are pure, I do think at some level he wants to understand who Jesus is. Remember, Jesus has done extraordinary things up to this point in the Gospel of Luke. He's performed miracles just in chapter 7. Jesus has healed the, the servant of a centurion without even being in the presence of this servant. He follows that up by totally disrupting a funeral procession that's going on where a widow's only son has died. Jesus stops the whole funeral and raises the son from the dead. Now, doing those types of things, word got around. Who is this guy? Before that, in chapter 6, Jesus has given the Sermon on the Plain where he's taught with great authority. I think part of the reason that, that Simon invites Jesus over is he wants to decide for himself, who is this guy? Who is this Jesus? And we see, based upon Simon's own thoughts that Jesus reads, He's trying to decide, is Jesus a prophet? Is he a prophet? So Simon invites him over, but in his investigation, in inviting Jesus over, Simon's gross heart of pride is exposed. We see it in several places. The first is just in his interactions with Jesus. I find it interesting, as it, although it doesn't come out immediately in the story, I find it interesting that, that Simon invites Jesus over and the, because of the pride in his heart, he just assumes he's worthy to have Jesus come to his house. He's worthy to have Jesus come to a meal. In fact, what Jesus tells us that Simon fails to do points to the fact that not only did he think uh, Jesus was worthy to be there, but Jesus should have felt privileged to be there. Simon's prejudice towards Jesus begins to come out in, in these things that Jesus lists that he fails to do. He didn't 
wash Jesus' feet. He didn't greet him with a kiss. He didn't anoint his head with oil. Now, those things may sound um, weird, and uh, I can assure you, if Cecil ever invites you over, he's not going to greet you with a kiss, and you're better off for it. But these were, these were more than just common courtesies. This was beyond just hospitality. In their culture, you had a responsibility to show honor to your guests. The way you treated your guests didn't so much reflect on you as it reflected on the guest. I think perhaps Simon's scheming here. Perhaps he's trying to, to dishonor Jesus. But honestly, there's part of me that wonders if he just had such a low view of Jesus that these things didn't even cross his mind. A servant should have washed Jesus' feet. He should have been greeted with a kiss. His head should have been anointed with oil. But, but Simon's prideful heart is so exposed that he doesn't even do these things because he set himself over Jesus. I'm here to judge you, Jesus, to see whether or not you are a prophet. I'm the standard. I will tell you. You should feel privileged to come to my house and to sit at my table while I decide who you are. It's a gross heart of pride. And it's only further exposed by the interaction with the other main character in this story, the woman. This woman shows up, right? And what does Simon, what do we know Simon's thoughts are towards this woman? Well, again, because Jesus exposes them to us, Simon's thoughts about this woman is that she is a sinner. Now, in fairness to Simon, we don't get full details of everything. Luke doesn't record all that to, for us. But it is almost as if in Simon's mind, once he's said this woman is a sinner, that's all you need to know. She doesn't need a name. She doesn't need any other details because she is in that group over there. She's in that bunch, that sinner group. That's where she is. And given Simon's the way that he is appalled in the fact that Jesus would allow this woman, a sinner, to touch him, it makes something very clear. Simon would not have allowed that woman to touch him. And if he wouldn't have allowed the woman to reach out and touch him, for sure Simon is not going to reach out and touch that woman. Why? Because he's so much better. He's so much better than she is. She is a sinner. She's in a group over there. And Simon, this Pharisee, no, he's in a different category. He's in a totally separate group. Now, here's the crazy thing. And I love the word of God because sometimes it just... It just cuts to my heart because I'm reading this passage and I'm studying this and I'm looking at Simon and I'm going, what a jerk. I'm looking at Simon and I'm going, I would never do that. I would never judge somebody like that. I would never think so highly of myself that I wouldn't you know, just offer common courtesy to somebody who comes in my house. I would never look at a woman and just be like, you're a sinner, get away from me, don't touch me. I would never do that. I am way better than... Si oh, jeez. My sinful heart is exposed. What's happening in my heart, there's a, there's a great 
piece of fine art that illustrates this. It's, a, it's an episode of Seinfeld. Yes, that is fine art in my opinion. For a moment you were like, wow, Eric looks at fine art. And then I said Seinfeld and you're like, oh, nope, nope. It's about par for the course. It starts out with Jerry on a, a cell phone call and, uh, and he witnesses a hit and run. And, and so he's disgusted by this. Who could commit a hit and run? Only he's pulled up short because when he goes to confront the driver, it turns out to be a beautiful woman. Well, Elaine knows that he's witnessed this, and so she's in the mix of condemning him because he's witnessed this hit and run. And, and, and yet in the course of the, the, the episode, she ends up telling this string of lies to try and impress some friends of hers. Well, and George, he's in on both of these, and so he's giving Jerry a hard time because he ends up dating this woman who committed the hit and run, and, and he's also giving Elaine a hard time because she's strung together all of these lies, and by the end of the episode, he ends up committing adultery. And there's this great moment where they are all in Jerry's apartment, all of them ready and willing to condemn the other person for how hideous they are and how bad their judgment is, while seeking to downplay their own sin, their own wrong, their own misconduct. It is so easy for us to read this story, to turn Simon into the villain, and to do the very thing to him that he does to this woman. But here's the question, and here's what I want to ask you this morning, is not how do you see Simon, but how do you see yourself? Because that's the issue. The issue wasn't, isn't so much how Simon saw this woman. The issue, I think the question that the text begs of us is how did Simon see himself? Let me put it to you this way. Imagine that you were having guests come over to your house. A meal is being prepared. And that moment hits where you realize some of the ingredients that you need. You don't have. Got to go to the grocery store. Got to get these things. Get back. Stuff's on the stove. It's cooking. People are coming. You know that moment, right? This is the moment my wife does not send me to the grocery store because I'll be gone too long running up and down the aisle looking for whatever it is. So you're at the grocery store. You finally find the stuff. You go to the express lane and there you are express lane 10 items or less and you look up and there's a woman in front of you with a cart and she has more than 10 items right now already you're going what come on now but it gets worse because this woman She's kind of dirty. Her clothes don't look very kept. She's overweight. She has a kid in the cart who's overweight. And this kid isn't just in the cart overweight. This kid is screaming, pitching a fit, pointing at every piece of candy. I want that. Ah! And every few seconds, she keeps giving in and giving the kid the candy. You're going, this is ridiculous. This is ridiculous. You're in the wrong lane. You, 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 now you're giving, you're, you're a terrible parent. Well, then you notice the things. It's not just the candy that, that she's given the kid. You look at what's in her car. It's junk. There's no fruits and vegetables. There's no gluten-free stuff. Well, I know why you're overweight. I mean, just well, look at what you're buying. 
And then it all just explodes when the cashier gives the total and she reaches into her pocketbook and pulls out food stamps to pay for it. Now in that moment, let's just assume that all of your thoughts about that woman are correct. Let's just assume that she is a awful, an awful mother. Let's just assume that she is lazy and she's only overweight because she eats terrible food. Let's just assume that she knew it was 10 items or less and she got there just because she doesn't care about anyone else. Let's just assume that she just is wasting not only her money and time, but is wasting the hard-earned money and time of those who, who pay taxes. And she's abusing all of that. Let's just say all of those things are true. Assume the absolute worst about her. The question is not, what are your thoughts about her? The question is, what are your thoughts about yourself in that moment? Because the reality is that my thoughts about myself in that moment is she is a sinner and I am not like her. I don't even take a carton of eggs into the express lane in case somebody counts each egg as a separate item. I'd never do that. My kid asks for candy in the checkout line, I slap him. I'm a way better parent. I'd never do that. I don't know what's on your list. I don't know if that illustration hits you, but I want you to ask yourself that question this morning. How do you see yourself? When you're on social media, you see a post that somebody's made, you see somebody back this thing or that thing. How do you see yourself? Not just what do you think about them. How do you see yourself? Do you recognize that you are a sinner? I can say that with confidence to every single one of you in here, myself included. You are a sinner. Romans 3.23, we know it well, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It goes on to say, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Here's the problem. What we tend to think is we think we're either in Romans 3.23 or we're in Romans 3.24. And the reality is that for all of us in Christ, we are both. We were not once a sinner. Now we're not. Those sinners are out there. Those sinners are the ones who march in the gay pride parades. Those sinners are the ones who, who are, 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 are doing all these horrible things. Those are the sinners. I'm not one of them. No, what Scripture tells us is that in this lifetime, we will always be sinners. We are sinners and we are justified. We are sinners and we are forgiven. We are sinners and we are adopted by God. So no matter what group of people, Christian, listen to me this morning, no matter what group of people you stumble upon, when you see them, when you look on them, it does not matter what they are doing, you can say as you look on them. They are sinners like me. Made in the image of God like me. And here's the reality. It may just be that they have not found what I've been given by grace. Sinner and a gross heart of pride. A gross heart of pride. 
Well, the next thing we see is a gross love. A gross love, and we see it in this sinful woman. Here I mean something that's disgusting. It's what all of the boys in here thought when I said the word gross, right? We think something vulgar, nasty, that kind of thing. That's what I mean by gross here. Now, if you don't want to describe this woman's love as gross, then here I just have a moment. We can take a little break here from the message. What I want you to do is ask yourself this question. Do I love the person sitting next to me? Or someone sitting around you, do you love them? We're at church, you have to say yes, come on. Right, yes, I do. Okay, so here's what I want you to do. I want you to get down on your hands and knees, take their socks and shoes off, begin crying over their feet. Some of you, I'm not even gonna ask about the hair thing for some of you, that would be really difficult to wipe it. You can wipe it with your hands, but you need to begin kissing their feet profusely. Okay, that's gross. All right, please don't do that, that's gross. This is a gross love. Luke writes his gospel to a man named Theophilus. I presume, along with many others, that Theophilus is probably a Gentile. And then among the many reasons that Luke is writing, I think one of the reasons he's writing to Theophilus is because Theophilus is a Gentile is going, wait a second, we've believed in the Messiah of the Jews and most of the Jews have not. He wants Theophilus to be certain about these things that he's heard about Jesus. And so Luke loves throughout his gospel to highlight the fact that, yes, Jesus came as the Messiah of the Jews, but he also came to those that were marginalized, to those that were on the fringes, to the poor, to the outcast. And so here in this story, Luke does, he highlights one of the groups that he loves to highlight, which is women. And so he points to this woman. In fact, it's very emphatic, verse 37, that behold, it's, it's saying, look, look here, focus here. And so this woman comes along. Well, as we've already kind of asked this question, what do we know about this woman? What does the text tell us about this woman? Well, we don't know much. We don't know her name. We don't know her occupation, although some would really insist that she was a prostitute. I don't think the text really bears that out. We don't know details about her. We don't know how old she was. We don't know if she had children, if she was married. We don't know really where she lived or what economic status she was at. We don't know much about this woman. Here is one thing the text wants us to know about this woman. She is a sinner. Luke says it in verse 37. Simon thinks it in verse 39. And then if you're not convinced by both of those, Jesus comes around and says it in verse 47. She is a sinner. Now, of course, as part of us, we want to know what kind of sinner. I mean, what do you mean by sinner? And I think intentionally Luke doesn't tell us because that's not the point. The story wants us to, Luke wants us to know this woman is a sinner. Now, something else happens in my heart. It's like the opposite of what happened with Simon. I read about Simon and I want to judge him. He's the villain. He's the bad guy. I read the woman and what do I want to do? I want to have compassion. What I want to do with the woman is I want to turn her into a victim. I want to say, well, certainly at some point in her life, something went wrong. Somebody sinned against her, and so she's been forced to either be a prostitute or to end up in some poor state. It's not her fault. It's not. But here's what I realized as I studied the text. It won't let you do that. It won't let you turn her into a victim. It doesn't give you any of those details. What it insists that you know is that she is a sinner. It wants you to take this woman as a sinner. 
The reality is, if we take this woman as a victim, the more we turn her into a victim, the more we diminish the forgiveness that she's received in Jesus Christ. She's a sinner. That's what the text wants us to know, that she is indeed a sinner. What else does it want us to know? It wants us to know that she is forgiven. She's forgiven. There's a lot of layers to this story, and we cannot go into all of them, but one of them is this this judging of Simon, Simon judging Jesus. And as you notice, this woman comes in, she weeps, and all these things are going on, and Simon's thought in his head, right, in his heart is, Jesus must not know who this woman is, or he wouldn't let her touch him. And he's saying, Jesus isn't a prophet. Well, then Jesus does what? A very prophet thing. He tells Simon what he's thinking. Right? Simon thinks he sees this woman. Simon thinks he's understood this woman, that he's figured her out. But Jesus does something he loved to do. He asks Simon a question in verse 44. Did you notice that question? He turns to Simon after telling the parable and he says, Simon, do you see this woman? Well, Jesus, I mean, um, (laughs) you know, we were kind of having a meal and this lady walks in and she's weeping. I mean, that's the way that the the text describes it. It's not just like there are a few trickles of tears. This is like full-blown eyes sobbing, snot coming out. I mean, like it's mixing, that's all on it. And then she's wiping that, that with her hair. She lets her hair down, which would have been shocking back in that culture. She's filled the whole space with this ointment that she's poured over your feet and she's kissing your feet. Um, Yeah, I saw her. What is Jesus asking Simon? He's challenging Simon. Simon, you think you see this woman? I see this woman. And what's amazing is that the first thing he doesn't say is, you think you see this woman, but you don't know the backstory. Roll the clip, guys. We'll get the backstory, and then you'll feel bad forever calling her a sinner. He doesn't do that. In fact, what he does is he says, do you see this woman? And then he ups the ante. You think you know this woman is a sinner? I can tell you, her sins are many. You don't know the half of it, Simon. You only know what what you see on the outside. You only know the gossip that you've heard. I see her heart. I see her thoughts. I see everything that motivates her. I see her will. I see her desires. I see every part of her. Oh, let me tell you something, Simon. You think you see this woman and you've called her a sinner? I know everything about her. And let me tell you, her sins are many. 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 There was something else, though, that Simon didn't see. It's that this woman is forgiven. Forgiven. Now, verse 47 is where we have to get a little geeky into the language here, okay? So bear with me, all right? We're going to get a little pastoral nerdy here, Greek stuff, because it's really important. Verse 47, Jesus says, Therefore I tell you her sins, which are many, 
are forgiven. Now, it's so important that we understand that verse 47 is not causal. What do we mean by that? Do not read it as because she did these things. What Jesus has just listed are the things this woman has done. She's wept. She has, she has wiped his feet with tears. She's anointed his feet. She's kissed his feet. And what this text is not saying is that because she's shown this devotion, she's earned forgiveness. No, no, a thousand times no. The therefore is not causal, it's evidential. It is to say what you're seeing on the outside, what what this woman is displaying in devotion shows something, Simon, that you've totally missed that's happened on the inside. She's forgiven. She's forgiven. Now, we got to stay in this geeky lane for a moment here because then as we continue on in that verse, it says, therefore I tell you, her sins which are many are forgiven. Then it says, for she loved much. And again, we could wrongly understand and say, oh, I get it. She got the forgiveness because she loved. So God forgave. No. The Net Bible translated it, thus she loved. And that's, I think, a better translation. She loved. Why? Because she was forgiven. And because she was forgiven, she loved. And her love showed up in devotion. It's so important that we understand that. I firmly believe that what we witness with this woman is not the moment of her receiving forgiveness. I think what we witness is a woman who's had an encounter with Jesus at some point before. She has been forgiven, and now she's on the hunt. She's looking for Jesus. It only makes sense as you read what few details we have of the story. She hears that Jesus is at the Pharisee's house. And then she shows up with an alabaster ointment. And she didn't just have that in her, in her purse all the time. No, she plans. She goes and gets it. She doesn't walk in and go, hey, which one of you is Jesus? Got something I need to do. No, she knows who Jesus is. She knows who he is. She's been forgiven. And so she comes. And it is the forgiveness that she has received that has stoked the flames of affection in her heart towards Christ. Now let me say something, Baraka, and I'm going to risk some time here. I often say these types of things to you because I love you. But notice that this affection which Christ gladly receives is drenched in emotion. Drenched in it. Imagine this scene if this woman just does this in an emotionless, stoic kind of way. No, it's thick with emotion. It's a total-bodied response. She's responding to the truth of her forgiveness, and it's awakened affections in her heart that are erupting in great emotion as she weeps over the feet of the one who's forgiven her. It's a beautiful thing. Okay, one one last geeky thing. All right, in verse 47, when Jesus says, therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, the verb there is in the perfect tense, and as one commentator notes, it is to say that this is not a one-time past event. It's not a, there was a moment she was forgiven, it is to say that this woman now lives in a state of forgiveness. Isn't that beautiful? Beautiful. 
This woman now lives in a state of forgiveness. This is her reality. This is how she exists now, in a state of forgiveness. And so she comes to the feet of Jesus, weeps, wipes his feet with her hair, anoints it with ointment, kisses his feet, because she's forgiven. And it has stoked in her heart affection for her Savior. Believer, understand that in this life, we never move beyond the state of forgiveness. Do you, do you know that? Do you understand that? We never move beyond the state of forgiveness in this life. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, that confess is present active. We as believers are always constantly confessing sins. Why? Because Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's where we live. We are always falling short. We never move beyond that. Yes, we are justified. Yes, we are adopted. But always falling short, always failing, and therefore always confessing and needing to live in this state of forgiveness. Here's the reality. We can trick ourselves into thinking that what we do is we get forgiven and then we move on. We get forgiven and then we progress. We get forgiven and then we, we, we live this life of virtue, of, of, of good moral behavior. We get forgiven and then we beat ourselves in, in, with spiritual disciplines and all these things into, into to growing. And, and we leave behind the need for forgiveness. We leave behind this need to live in a state of forgiveness. Here's, here's what we even do, and, and I, I, I grew up under some of this teaching by, by people who, who thought they were, they were teaching me good things, and it was, a, it was a weight, and it was a burden, and it was a crushing to my soul. There was this idea that through a life of virtue, I could awaken my affections for Christ. If I would just beat myself more with spiritual disciplines and and. and, and and commits of uh, acts of devotion, then, then somehow some of those acts of devotion at some moment would awaken in my heart deeper affection for Christ. And every morning if I got up and I, I got to my Bible and there was an affection there, then it was because I was doing something wrong and I needed to try harder and work harder and kick myself harder. Our affections for Christ are not awakened through our virtue. That was Simon's mindset. Our affections for Christ are awakened as this woman's affections for Christ are awakened. Our affections for Christ are awakened by His grace. That's what awakens my affections. That's what awakens your affections. That's what stirs in my heart this type of response that we see in this woman. Not my devotion, but Christ's devotion. Not my love for Him, but it's understanding His love for me. That grace shows up to us in two things we don't often think of as gifts of grace. The gift of confession and repentance. The gift of confession and repentance. Believer, listen to me this morning. Confession and repentance are gifts of God's grace to you. They are gifts of God's grace to you. We have the privilege of going to a holy God and saying to Him, I have no excuses. 
I am not going to water down anything that I've done. Lord, when my wife was away, you know what I looked at. This is what it was. Lord, you know what I did to my child. I got so angry, I took the authority that you've given me and I, 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 I abused it. Lord, you know what I thought about that woman in the express lane in front of me. You know everything about me. You know what drives me. You even know the good things that I, that I do that other people applaud me for. You know what's motivating me in those moments. You know, Lord, the thoughts that came into my mind this morning when I saw so-and-so coming into the Sunday gathering. You know. You know what I thought about Patrick and the song that he picked. You know that I stood there and I said, I'm not raising my hand to this song. I don't like it. When I'm supposed to be praising you, the words are about forgiveness in Christ. You know all these things about me. And here's what we think. We think we're going to confess those things. And we think what we're going to get in that moment is we're going to hear the crushing blow of a disappointed father. That he's going to say, I knew it. I knew it. I'm so disappointed in you. I've put up with you for so long. I'm so disappointed. Well, what we're going to hear is we're going to hear anger. Would you stop it already? How many times have I forgiven you? Instead, what do we hear? Your sins are forgiven. Faith has saved you. Go in peace. And it's at that moment, believer, when you and I stand naked before our God, knowing He sees everything that we are, and we hear those tender words of forgiveness lavished over us because of His grace, that affection in our heart explodes and if he were to appear before us oh we would get down on our hands and knees and we wouldn't have to provoke tears to flow from our eyes no they would flow and we would wet his feet and we would wipe his feet and we would anoint it with any perfume we could find and we would kiss his feet why because I'm forgiven he knows me and he loves me Affection is not awakened through virtue, through striving harder. This is what awakens affection. The understanding that we live in a state of forgiveness by grace through Christ. Now listen to me. I wonder if that affection is what's awakened in our hearts. And if we are remembering that this is the good news of the gospel, how that would affect the way I share that with others. The way I move out towards others. This is the good news. This is what we proclaim to others. When we see them and we say, yes, you are a sinner. I'm a sinner too. We declare to them, but there's one who knows everything that you've done. And he offers to you a free gift of his grace, forgiveness through the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe if we, our tone was not that we come in combative, ready to argue 
but rather we come to share the one with whom we are madly in love because he has loved us. And we just want to share with them. We just want to share with them where they can find forgiveness. Well, third, a gross compassion. A gross compassion. This gross here is a growing and spreading with excessive luxuriousness. Don't get this wrong. This woman's not the centerpiece of this story. Simon's not the centerpiece of this story. Christ is. How do you see Jesus in this story? Do you see him as angry with Simon, manipulating things so he can really stick it to him? Maybe you see him as kind of emotionless. He's just kind of hovering over all of these circumstances, unmoved, detached. Maybe you have a tendency to view these moments in Scripture like, um, I don't know, photo ops set up by a politician or a social media influencer so they can look a certain way, get some clicks, some likes. That's not Jesus here. Jesus in compassion seeks out this woman, and I am convinced of this, that Jesus in compassion is also seeking out Simon. Without forgiveness, this woman would have never shown up because she wouldn't have loved Jesus. Jesus sought her out, forgave her. It awakens in her this great affection, and then she demonstrates it in these great acts of devotion. We ask the question, why would Simon ask Jesus to his house, but why would Jesus go to Simon's house? Why would he bother? Because, because Jesus has that same compassion for Simon. And so he tells Simon this parable of two, two debtors. One owes significantly more than the other, but one of the main points of the parable is that neither one of them can pay. They're both in the same condition because no matter the amount of the debt, neither one can pay. And the moneylender in the parable does the thing that a moneylender never do. He forgives the debt. The literal translation is he graced them. And so he asks Simon, Simon, who's going to love more? And of course, Simon says, well, the one who's been forgiven more. Jesus is after Simon's heart if he would hear it, if he'd listen to it. Simon thinks that in, he stands before God based on his virtue, based on his law keeping, based on his heritage. What's at the heart of the law? What's the greatest commandment of all? That you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Simon, Simon, how would you awaken your love for me? What will awaken your affections for me, Simon? We'll be striving harder, working harder, disciplining yourself more. Here's what will awaken your affections. Here's what will cause you to love, to acknowledge that you're a sinner and find forgiveness. A gross compassion. This is the heart of our Savior. This is Jesus. Do you see it? Do you see him? How could Jesus do this? How could he forgive this woman? How could he pursue Simon in compassion? Well, he could do it and he could offer it because he would be anointed again. This time it wouldn't be his feet. This time it would be his head with a crown of thorns. He would be judged again. 
This time they wouldn't say, if this man were a prophet, this time they nail a placard above him that says, Jesus, King of the Jews. This time someone would not weep over his feet, but they would pierce his feet. And those words of condemnation that you and I are fearful to receive because we have a glimpse of how sinful our hearts are, those would fall on him. He would be rejected. He would be crushed so that we could be forgiven. That's Jesus. That's his heart. I hope that you see it. And I hope that as you see it, it affects the way you think about yourself and your relationship with him, but it also affects how you see others as you go to your workplace, as you drive home to your neighborhood, as you see the people on your sports team, sinners like me. But I found forgiveness. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace. I thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank you that this morning none of us are here and have to try and stand before you based upon having lived a virtuous week. I pray, Father, that we would believe what your word tells us to be true, that we live in a state of forgiveness by faith in Christ. And I pray that we would move out towards others who are sinners like us, holding out with joy, with deep affection, this hope that we have found. Jesus Christ, ready, full of compassion to forgive sinners. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.